Hi everyone, my name is Navridi. And I'm Eric. And welcome to our podcast, Above and Below, where we interview changemakers and industry experts to help us explore how we're shaping our culture and how it's shaping us. Blockchain has often been linked to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin because it's a framework that allows for these monetary transactions to be done. And today we want to learn more about blockchain, how it got started, how it can be used in different ways, and also its future evolution. So Navridi and I have done a lot of research into blockchain to try to understand what it is. You know, we had to watch a bunch of videos. I'm sure you and the audience have heard about it and trying to understand what the buzz is. And I think the most common metaphor or something that we thought about when we were first reading about it is that Wikipedia is sort of a good analogy to what blockchain is in the sense that Wikipedia is a database where a lot of people are entering information and there's checks and balances over validating that information um, so, so that you're getting accurate data at the end. Um, and so that's sort of how blockchain is sometimes explained in the sense that it's a public ledger of transactions of assets. Uh, so instead of information, um, you're seeing transactions, like a history of a, a monetary transaction, which is why uh, why uh, blockchain is very closely associated with cryptocurrency. It's become the foundation of uh, these financial transactions that happen over the internet. And in the case of Wikipedia, just to see how a blockchain works, you know, let's take for example, you search for Beethoven. And if you click on the view history tab on that page, you can see a list or a ledger of the time, the date, the exact edit that was made, and also the name of the person that made the edit or touched any aspect of that page. So there's this option to view the version of the page from an earlier date as well and take a look back to see how the Wikipedia page for Beethoven looked like and what information it had on it, let's say at 8.37 p.m. on December 18th, 2010, when Jane Jones edited it. So that's essentially how um, a blockchain works because it's this visible public ledger um, of information or transactions to see exactly when uh, a change was made and to see each step of it. Right. There's this notion that blockchain is going to build more trust into transactions over time and mm -hmm. reduce this uncertainty we have around who owns what and and everything. Right, and who's and what is the meaning of value? Because it's essentially a value exchange uh, as well. But I think instead of uh, Going too deep into it right now, what what I'd really like to discover from our conversation today is, you know, demystifying blockchain a bit. I think um, I know I was personally confused between you know what is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and blockchain. I thought they were both <laughs> kind of the same thing, but um, you know, I'd actually really like to learn more about um, how it got started. What exactly are the different parts and assumptions you know that make up this? idea of a blockchain, what are the ideals in it? We're curious to explore what the hype is around blockchain. You know, just like being in Silicon Valley, you see a lot of hype around new technologies and we want to dig in deeper into what is blockchain really and is it a naive technological panacea or is it really going to be something that's going to transform the way we work? Yeah, and I really want to know, you know, what are the pros of blockchain and do the pros outweigh the cons? Uh, what problem is blockchain essentially trying to solve as well? So today we have uh, Tyler Wellner on our show. He is a partner at Block Venture Coalition, and he's going to tell us all about blockchain, how it got started, and its future evolution. Welcome, Tyler. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to pick your brain on this and and get to know you know what all you've been up to and your insights on on blockchain. So actually, can you start off and tell us about Block Venture and what is it that you're doing over there? Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here. Um, so at the Block Venture Coalition, this really started, you know, about a year ago. Um, you know, let me preface this: Are you guys familiar with the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance? 
No, no. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so it's um, for short, it's the EEA. Um, and basically, it was this alliance of like a lot of different corporations that came together um, and wanted to foresee, you know, what the blockchain future would hold for the industry, you know, how they could work and build applications on top of a decentralized network. Um, me and one of my good friends from school, Philip, um, you know, started brainstorming, you know, what does this look like, you know, on other levels? Like, what is the power of a coalition, of a consortium and things like that? Um, and we ended up building out the Block Venture Coalition. Um, it really stemmed from our time together at school at Carnegie Mellon. Um, Philip ended up founding the Blockchain Research Group at Carnegie Mellon, which is now like a full department of recognized professors, students, um, you know, and, and enthusiasts that are really studying kind of the bleeding edge technology at the edge of the space. You know, I was working at a fund um, called Divergence Digital Currency, now known as Struck Capital Crypto at the time. Um, Philip was graduating his senior year. Um, he had this, you know, incredible network of different researchers that he had become close with while building out this research group there. You know, people at like UVA, MIT, um, you know, all of the top institutions. And, you know, on my end, I was meeting a lot of different investors, entrepreneurs, and people like that. Yeah, we thought, what better way to bring, you know, these two unique groups together and see what we can build out of it. So in about, you know, a little under a year now, we've grown it out to be the largest alliance of university blockchain research groups with 41 different partners um, and then 44 different venture capital funds. Um, our two main goals are, one, to provide resources to stand out projects in the space. Um, you know, anybody, you know, whether it's a, you know, university project, just, you know, a startup in general, um, or anything like that, we have like this unique position in the middle of the market where we can tap into exchanges, VCs, research groups, media players, and developers. And we see a lot of different deal flow and opportunities from that. And then our second goal um, is to provide resources cross universities. So um, the internet was actually founded based off of setting up nodes at different universities and sharing research papers. Um, and we saw a similar model here that we could take to different, you know, university groups in general all around the world. So, you know, the space is very early. People are developing, you know, educational materials, and that's really hard to keep up with. It's, you know, a constant, you know, challenge every single day with new papers being published to stay on top of it. So we kind of act as like a syndicate in that manner and pass along, you know, different research, you know, papers, articles, things like that, and materials, um, you know, along with talent across university. And, and that's like really the second main goal that we're trying to solve. So to simplify all that, what did what is like your main business model? Are you like a nonprofit synthesizing all this information? What how do you structure yourself? So we we are a for-profit company. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of the work we do, you know, is things that people might view as like nonprofit like work. So we we work, work a lot with students, we set up meetups. Our goal is really to take the space forward over the next five to ten years, and we believe that you need you know actors like that that are going to you know put in a lot of time and sweat equity to do those things. Um, the way we pay the bills is we partner with like outstanding projects, and you know take you know a portion of equity or tokens up front, and then the rest of it vests over a period of one to two years or whatever is consistent with the team and other advisors um, there as well. Um, you know we come on as like part time team members, you know incubate the projects from. You know, their seed round raise all the way up till they're fully launching the project. Um, and we think we can provide value throughout all life stages of the company. Um, you know, getting developers, you know, at universities, that's one of the, you know, most sought after positions, um, the entire ecosystem and being able to deploy like that Facebook marketing model where you can, you know, launch an ambassador program, you know, overnight through us is something that a lot of our partners have been finding very helpful. Wow, that's like a whole new world to me. Um, <laughs> but just backtracking a little bit, could you explain to us like what blockchain is to you? Like, what would, would it be the, the most simple way to explain it? Yeah, I think the simplest way to explain a blockchain is it's a database. All a blockchain is is that, and you know, all these different blocks—they're just like you know different components of a database. They store different information. Um, you know, in some cases it's transactions, you know, it's addresses, it's things like that. And it creates this large database that everybody agrees upon is true. Um, you know, I liked your analogy with Wikipedia earlier and the way I like to explain it is it's like a Google doc, um, that a team shares for a project and everybody can propose different changes. And at the end of the day, everybody has to agree upon what the consensus is and, you know, what people are going to view as the source of truth. So, that's all a blockchain really is. It's, it's something that everybody in the ecosystem agrees upon and all of the different data points line up for everyone. And what would you say are the givens or assumptions needed for a blockchain? 
the, the biggest assumption that's needed for a blockchain and um, you know, I think it sometimes gets lost, you know, in terms of like permissioned ledgers and, you know, um, you know, if you guys heard about JP Morgan coin at all, like that was recently announced that JP Morgan was launching like a stable coin that was, you know, asset backed one to one with JP Morgan dollars. But, you know, I don't really view that as a blockchain. I think the key word here is like a distributed ledger technology um, and distributed ledger really means decentralized so really, like, if we look at Bitcoin as kind of like the, you know, number one project in the space by market cap, it has kind of like, you know, all these different, um, you know, meanings around it in terms of like this anonymous founder, it's the most decentralized, it has the most locked up value in the space. Um, what makes it really strong is the distributed component, um, because there's no one trusted node that everybody's going to rely on for data. Um, it's very hard to get all these actors to coordinate with one another. Um, and agree on this truth, and I think that's where a lot of the value is, is in that decentralization. Yeah, I have a question about how that works, and I guess if we were to look at Bitcoin as an example, like say I'm, I buy Bitcoin online, I'm paying with uh, USD cash, does that transaction then get approved by multiple people? That's what I'm still questioning about Bitcoin, when you say other people are checking these transactions. That sounds like it takes a lot of time to check. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it to like get kind of a little bit technical. Um, you know, in some cases, these transactions occur off chain. So, are you familiar with Coinbase? Yes. Yeah, Coin yeah. Coinbase. For those that don't know, is like this you know leading exchange in the U.S. Um, and they have like Bitcoin wallets like on their website. So. You know, it's not very economical for them to constantly be moving transactions around on their site. So what they do is they have their own like internal ledger and they have their own Coinbase wallets and they move like numbers around in an Excel sheet um, to transfer those things. So, you know, in your example where you're like exchanging U.S. dollars for Bitcoin, there wouldn't be like, you know, a set of validators validating that. Now, if you were to send it to like, you know, an, an address that you created using like a ledger wallet or some other software online that isn't, you know, controlled by a centralized entity, but you were the one with like your private keys and, you know, your secret passcodes, um, that would be approved by miners or I like to call them validators because it, it makes more sense to, you know, people who aren't familiar with the space. Um, the job of these validators are to, um, really, it's twofold. The first step is they have to solve this really hard puzzle. Um, and they basically, the only way to solve this puzzle is by guessing numbers, um, just like by brute force. You can have, you know, CPU, which is um, like your MacBook Pro. That would be like CPU power, and it's not very strong. GPU is stands for like graphical processing unit, and that was actually first used in video games. Um, and it's a much faster way of like solving these puzzles and guessing numbers. And then even one step further, ASICs. And ASICs are even better than GPUs, but they're you know one-stop purpose for you know mining different Bitcoin or you know crypto algos. So once an ASIC um, you know has lived out its life cycle, you can't use it and you know, repurpose it as you know another sort of computer for you know video games or something like that. Like it's only good for mining. Um, so there's various ways to go about it. But basically, any sort of miner can use one of these. You know, technologies to try and you know hard brute force guess this correct number um, or this puzzle, and if they do that, they receive a block reward. Now, a block reward is something that is supposed to incentivize them to do this. Um, you know, otherwise they wouldn't want to. Um, you know, it's a lot of time and energy to mine these things. You have to rent out electricity. Um, you know, pay the bills on that, and you know, you're no, not guaranteed to ever solve one of these puzzles at all. So the block reward is in form of Bitcoin. So the, the miners, they get paid Bitcoin for validating transactions. Um, they're also paid in transaction fees too. And what they do is they bundle all these transactions into a block like we discussed earlier. And then if they're the person who is able to figure out that code, you know, that secret key, um, you know, they publish that to the entire network. And then everybody else, you know, through this algorithm that everybody's running, um, you know, accepts that as now the source of truth within the entire blockchain. And can you tell us who can become a validator and participate in a blockchain to accept or validate all of these transactions? 
Well, theoretically, you know, anybody could. Um, you know, back in 2009 when, you know, Bitcoin was, you know, founded, you could run your MacBook and, you know, probably get hundreds if not thousands of Bitcoin, you know, every day just because the, the difficulty level was so low. Um, you know, that's one other part of Bitcoin is that it has this difficulty, you know, barometer. Um, and, you know, as more hash power or as more computer resources are pushed into the system to try and mine Bitcoin, it gets harder and harder to solve. Um, you know, back then it was really easy and, you know, you could run your MacBook and like I said, get a lot of Bitcoin. Um, so now we have, you know, mining farms, you know, I've spoken to people from China who they have like mining farms, like in the middle of the forest and you have to like drive like 50 miles there. Um, they've got like sports cars all in a line. They've showed me pictures and they basically have these huge factories that just have like computers, like all wired up everywhere. And um, this is like in, true in like some colder regions too, because actually the electricity costs are lower since you don't need to pay for like fans and things to cool the computers down. Um, you know, upstate New York is really popular too um, for mining Bitcoin, but there's all these different areas that people have like, it's like insane how hard they work to reduce electricity costs and pull together resources. So. You know, if you download software on your laptop, you could project, you know, using your computing power, how much Bitcoin you're going to mine in a year. You know, I, I encourage everybody to try it out. I've done it. And like, I ran it on my laptop and like the fan starts heating up. Like it says you're going to lose like $90 in the year because you're like not going to ever, you know, win this math problem because there's too many other resources that are being, you know, distributed and dedicated towards it. Is that because as a, Bitcoin gets transacted, it just builds up a history of transactions and they have, they have to reconcile all of those over time. Like, and that transaction, is it that, is that, is there one original Bitcoin that gets followed through or do new bit, how do new Bitcoins get created? So new Bitcoins um, will not always be created. There is a date and it's, you know, maybe like a few decades down the road where there'll be no Bitcoins that are created at all. So it's, you know, a deflationary emission model where I think there's 21 million total Bitcoins that'll ever be in existence. And I think it's closer to 15 or 17 now based off of just lost Bitcoins, like people who lost their private keys or, you know, access to them in some form. Um, so, you know, on this public ledger, like you said, we can track, you know, Bitcoin throughout. You know, if I send it to somebody, you could see the person who received it and you could see who they passed it along to, et cetera. Um, these new Bitcoin right now are currently created through those block rewards that I mentioned. So, you know, if you are able to successfully compute, you know, this really hard, ri like this hard riddle through brute force, um, you know, guessing the correct numbers, you're rewarded with a certain amount of Bitcoin um, for solving that puzzle. So that's how they're newly created and they're paid out to the miners or the validators. So I just want to take a step back here and talk about the different ways a blockchain can be accessed and applied. You mentioned earlier that a blockchain can be a decentralized system where it's a public ledger and it's accessible to the public and by the public, where essentially anyone can become a validator given that it is decentralized and in a distributed network. But we're also seeing now that a blockchain can be used privately. Uh, you mentioned earlier that by JP Morgan and other private corporations where the blockchain can only be privately accessed and used. Can you tell us a bit more about the difference between a public and privately used blockchain? Definitely. So the, the public ledger isn't the best for everything. So, you know, one of the downsides to Bitcoin is like these slow transaction times, you know, it's still faster than a bank would be. Like you have to, you know, wait for you know transactions to go through it, get processes through all their backend servers and things like that. And you know, Bitcoin, you can get it done in 30 minutes. And you know, it's not, you know, a second you can't go buy a Starbucks latte with it, but you know, I, I view it as kind of like more of a store of value closer to gold. Um, you know, JP Morgan can spin up their own internal blockchain and there's benefits to that. They see cost reductions. Um, you know, it's faster for them to use this ledger and crypto and JPM coin than their current systems, you know, operate. But they also control these servers. They control the protocol layer. They can print more JPM coin. There's no oversight to it at all. Um, with a distributed ledger or a decentralized ledger, everybody has to agree upon, you know, the emission schedule, you know, what blocks are being mined, um, you know, any sort of rule change that's going to govern the protocol at all. Everybody needs to agree upon what the current version of the blockchain is. 
in like the JPM coin case, it's not, but they still view blockchain as a way to reduce their costs and, you know, find ways to, you know, make their business more profitable in that sense. So, um, you know, Bitcoin isn't great at everything, but what it is good at is like a sound economic policy that everybody knows and can predict. Um, you know, if we look at our current economic climate, you know, we have quantitative easing going on where the government buys, you know, different securities, um, you know, different bonds and things like that. And we really have no insight to the amount of U.S. dollars being put into the market every day and what that inflation looks like. You know, with Bitcoin, you know, it's not there yet where it could be, you know, so strong to combat like the U.S. government. But, you know, what we do see in it is like a store of value that has a predictable, you know, emission schedule, block rewards. Everybody agrees upon the rules. And yes, it is volatile, but you know, maybe down the road it won't be. Yeah, I want I want to ask I want to ask you more about, you know, you're fairly young, like not too far out of college. I'm curious, like, what drew you to blockchain and its possibilities? Because, you know, it is a very technical thing. It's kind of like, it almost feels like something. You would think of like when you're much older in finance for many years, like, oh, I wish I could optimize these transactions. Or <sighs> like I'm wondering what draws college students and youth like into this space and what are you seeing is the possibility? So what really drew it, you know, me into the space was I view it as kind of similar net similar to the the creation of the internet. Um, you know, when the internet came out, it was like really game changing for business technology. It opened up a lot of possibilities and a lot of, you know, economic benefits to, to everyone. Um, I view blockchain technology in a similar way. And to me, it's really um, two things that come together that I'm very interested in. One, economics and two, computer science. Um, now, there's been, you know, other crossover in industries that I've now had to pick up and learn because Blockchain, you need to be kind of like an expert in a lot of different things. Um, you know, psychology is involved, behavioral economics is involved, um, you know, computer engineering is involved. There's so many different industries that this ties into. And being able to learn something new every day um, was really fascinating to me. Um, you know, being in banking, you know, a lot of the stuff there, you know, it's rigid, it's, you know, done a certain way. But blockchain, really, I didn't see, you know, many opportunities to get in the ground level of an industry and something that, you know, was the cross-section of a lot of my different interests and that I could really, you know, put my name forward with and, and you know, build a career out of, you know, even Satoshi Nakamoto, who wrote the Bitcoin white paper, he doesn't even have 10 years, you know, kind of dumbing it down and simplifying it a bit. He doesn't even have 10 years of experience in this industry. You know, it was back in 2009 that he wrote it and the first Bitcoin block was mined. And, you know, I'm sure he has a strong, you know, encryption and cryptographic history beyond that. But this is new to everybody. And there's going to be a lot of, you know, experimentation, you know, a lot of competition and a lot of um, battling of different ideas that I'm excited to be a part of. All right. Well, can you tell us more about how blockchain and its infrastructure can be applied in industries beyond banking and finance? Yeah, definitely. I think there's blockchain isn't great for everything, but it is good for industries where there needs to be some sort of um, you know application of trust, or there's like some sort of central authority that is taking you know some sort of monopoly that is taking a huge cut of fees or you know revenue or things like that. Um, so I look at you know the Apple App Store. Um, you know, currently the way it's structured, or you know, iTunes artists or developers. Um, they're going to lose like 30% of their profits off the top because they have to rely on Apple to approve, you know, all of their different updates. You know, there's no other way around it. Um, there's no app store out there that really competes. You know, it's downloaded onto your iPhone, things like that. You know, if there was a way that you could propose updates to an app store, um, you know, submit your game, get it approved. Like it doesn't, you know, violate any sort of laws and stuff, but a decentralized network of participants could agree upon what apps get you know, voted in here, um, you know, you could see those fees cut down to like one or 2% and the developers and artists would retain, you know, a lot of those. You're kind of cutting out the middleman there. Um, supply chain, something that is, you know, fought with fraud. Um, you know, how do you validate that, you know, uh, Louis Vuitton bag that you bought is actually true. It's not something that was, you know, put on the, the conveyor belt at the factory and, you know, some worker ended up swiping it and, you know, putting a fraud one on there. Well, you could put, you know, some sort of QR code that, you know, was placed originally when the bag was developed. 
um, you know, it tracks it all throughout the, the life cycle of transportation from the barges all the way to the store in, you know, midtown Manhattan. And you could download an application, scan the QR code that nobody else has the keys to, and you could verify that that is actually the bag that you bought. You know, gambling is another one. You know, I was a big poker player, um, you know, for a while. And um, one of the things with online poker is that you don't know what the actual odds of cards being flipped are. So a lot of people, you know, believe that the house, like the casino, induces action in online card games because there's no sort of oversight there. So, you know, if there was a way to make the the hand a situation where a lot of people would want to bet, they would, you know, adjust the car the card flips by like a certain amount of percent just to, you know, make it a little bit more likely that you'll put more money down and you know, think that you have a better shot at winning the hand. You know, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But with blockchain, you could actually go in and verify that. You know, the odds of flipping, you know, a king of hearts are one out of 52. Um, you know, that sort of transparency, you know, develops this like ecosystem of trust, you know, and things that people can look back on and read the code and make sure that you're not being screwed out of something. Yeah, I'm in the real estate industry and I think a lot about how maybe blockchain could help accelerate transactions that are notoriously slow, like just buying a home and how long that takes. I know a few startups are trying to eliminate the broker or middlemen in that situation, but it's amazing how antiquated the process is. I don't know if you've thought about real estate at all. Yeah, real estate is this industry that I've uh, you know solely been cut, getting caught up to speed on. So you know I could see down the road um, you know some sort of Manhattan you know um, you know apartment building trading you know somebody could buy a sliver like one one thousandth of a Manhattan apartment building. I'm not exactly sure where the liquidity from that is going to come from, but you could effectively tokenize, you know, a building like that. Um, you could fundraise for it. You could do a lot of different things, pulling, you know, investors from all around the world and divvy up the shares of an apartment building and accelerate development that way. Um, you know, I know there's some companies out there that are looking at, you know, real estate, you know, very in depth, um, especially in, um, you know, different cities. I heard in like Abu Dhabi, I think. Like the world's tallest building is out there, or it's um, you know in in you know one of those big cities, and uh, what they're what they're doing is they're actually creating you know a token so that you can fractionalize ownership of this skyscraper. Um, you know, it's in their like five year roadmap or something like that. So you know, there's people who know about real estate, you know, a fair bit more than me, but it is like you know a budding part of the crypto industry. You've mentioned trust many times, and I would say that we all agree here that trust is also a given in order for a blockchain to succeed. So I want to challenge you on that and get your thoughts on whether you think everyone who is participating in a blockchain, whether it's decentralized or being used privately, is everyone really that trustworthy? Yeah, yeah that's a, it's a tough question. And you know, really, there's two sides of it. There are a lot of untrustworthy people in the blockchain space, just like you know any industry. Um, what kind of allows these people to thrive is that it's really like the Wild West. Nobody has really put their foot forward and said, you know, these are the rules we're going to play by. People won't come out and say whether there's securities or not. Um, you know, tokens can raise $50 million and never deliver and, you know, walk away with the money if, you know, they actually wanted to um, and, you know, anonymize themselves and th did things like that to cover their bases. And that has happened. Um, you know, on the other side of things, there's, you know, a lot of math at play, um, you know, in certain blockchains and, you know, what gets published to the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, is this truth that everybody, you know, agrees upon. Um, you know, down the road, I think there will be a lot of trust in these networks and we can all rely upon these things because these are the rules that we play by. You know, these are the protocols that we have and nobody can change those. Um, you know, you won't have Facebook selling your personal data. Um, you won't have like Google tracking your browser history and, you know, recommending, you know, advertisements based on that. We'll have, you know, a system of trust, maybe, you know, a new browser. I know there's one called Brave and there's basic attention token, which is um, tracked to that. And there's over 10 million people using this new browser online. And what they do is they basically eliminate, you know, any sort of advertisement data that'd be collected upon you, you know, while you're searching on the internet. Um, they're able to collect it in a different way, you know, anonymize where it comes from. And you can actually earn tokens for watching ads through that. And you know, I think there's ways that, you know, trust can be developed through that sense. But, you know, currently, there is like a lot of scammers out there. You got to really be on your guard and make sure you're working with the right people in this space. Um, you know, if something doesn't feel right, you shouldn't participate in like, you know, a crowd sale. There's there's too many things going on where it could go wrong. 
I, I love that idea about beginning to monetize your personal data. Right now, you know, all these companies are making so much money off of our, our privacy and and personal information. Um, I would love to talk more about that and like security uh, and what the potential blockchain has for preventing like identity theft. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, in addition to identity theft. You know, there's ad fraud tech out there. Um, you know, the public ledger is interesting to me because I think the public ledger is very revolutionary, and that's where you know it's what Bitcoin is built on. You know, everybody can see what's in everybody's address. But at the same time, you know, identity is important, and you know, I don't want people going onto the Bitcoin blockchain and if they have my address, knowing what I have in my wallet. I think privacy is really key as you look forward to the next you know five years in this space. Um, you know, identity solutions are being built out right now. There's actually a project called Civic where you can, you know, store your your identity on the blockchain and go buy. Uh, I think it's a Bud Light from one of their um, vending machines. And I think, like, you know, identity is also a scary thing for me too. Um, China is doing a lot of things right now. They're creating kind of this um, social score mechanism and testing it in some of their economic provinces and. Um, something with like a blockchain enabled identity where it allows you to like track things like, you know, how many parking tickets you have or, you know, what kind of job you have or how much money you have, all those things that could be tracked on a blockchain where you could effectively rank citizens, you know, in some sort of like parallel down the road, um, where technology is really, you know, a part of all of our lives, even more so than it is today is something that, you know, we should be wary of. Um, I think identity is really cool, but I think it's something that we should be, you know, very careful of, especially on like a public ledger where everybody knows what everybody does. Yeah, that makes me think a lot about the whole idea of regulation. You mentioned this Wild West phase that blockchain is in right now, and there are many who are pioneering through uncertain territory, testing out its potential and seeing where it can go in the future. So is regulation this scary red tape that could hinder this progress? What do you think about that? I think regulation is utterly important for the space to move forward. Um, businesses, you know, you can't go rogue and just start accepting, you know, privacy tokens. And you know, businesses aren't going to pay in tokens that are very volatile. And it's you know one of the biggest mistakes I see with like a lot of these startups is, you know, they think that you know they can project, you know, oh we're going to sign ten customers by the end of the year. But, you know, the first question I ask them is, you know, will like, you know, a large company like IBM, you know, they're trying to project out the revenue is in costs. So they're going to subject themselves to like a cryptocurrency that could, you know, go up or down by X amount of percent, you know, on any given day. And I think the answer is no. Um, I think regulation is key. I think it'll bring a lot of stability. Um, there's a lot of stable coins that are coming into this space, which are asset backed one to one with dollars. And I think, you know, that'll facilitate, you know, a lot of these payments that people, you know, have been talking about for a few years with like, you know, going to your Starbucks and buying a latte with actual cryptocurrencies. But, you know, going back to your like original question, yeah, regulation is definitely key. We need some clarity on, you know, whether Bitcoin and Ethereum are considered securities or not. And I think the answer is no. But, you know, what about all these other ones? You know, what about, you know, people who came in and, you know, frauded people out of millions of dollars. Uh, I think somebody really needs to kind of bring the hammer down on some of these things. And it might hurt the market in the short term. But if we really want to get there in the long run, this is something that's going to be more of like a collaborative effort than, you know, um, mercenary, rogue, like, you know, take this government. Like, it's, it's, not that, it's not like that. Things won't happen that way. Progress won't happen that way. You need, like, a lot of people working towards a common goal and, you know, seeing the benefits of blockchain and, you know, elaborating them, educating people and working together with regulators so that they fully know what the public is getting into and unaccredited investors aren't losing their life savings on, you know, some sort of ICO online. Mm -hmm. So who are you seeing being the leaders in, in blockchain right now who are the most influential people? Probably the most influential person in the space, um, you know, is Satoshi Nakamoto, um, the founder of Bitcoin. Nobody knows who he is. It could be a group of people. Um, it kind of has this really unique story around it. And one of the other really interesting stories that I think draws a lot of parallels to Bitcoin is, um, don't laugh too much at this, but have you guys heard of Mimblewimble? No, no, what is what's that? that? So Mimblewimble, um, it was this uh, anonymous French guy who wrote a paper 
under um, Voldemort from Harry Potter. He, that was his like name. And he basically found this new way of um, making the Bitcoin blocks, you know, smaller, putting like a lot more information in there and also privatizing transactions. And he dropped this like, you know, paper he wrote in a um, internet relay chat, which is just like a little chat room for like a bunch of, you know, Bitcoin enthusiasts and said, hey, check this out. Um, a few of the Bitcoin core developers, which are like the people who are constantly looking to improve Bitcoin, checked it out and said, hey, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. Like there's, you know, really revolutionary cryptographic techniques in here um, that we had never seen before. Like, let's think about this further. Um, another anonymous guy came along, picked it up and created this new token, Grin. Uh, which is also like another Harry Potter reference, apparently. Um, Mimblewimble, like going back to that, that was the name of the protocol that the uh, anonymous French guy wrote. And I think it's a invisibility cloak spell on Harry Potter. And there's like all these different Harry Potter themes around it. But basically, $100 million this past year ended up being put in from venture capitalists to mine this new token. It draws so many parallels to Bitcoin. There's you know, it's, there's nobody that they can point to and say they're profiting from this. The guy is totally dropped off the radar. He's not involved in the project, you know, at all, so to speak, as far as we know. Um, and there's another project too called Beam, which is also on another implementation that's slightly different than Grin. But I think these two groups are really interesting in the fact that they're very similar to Bitcoin and, you know, kind of their mission and the store of value. But, you know, like I said earlier, they're very focused on this like privacy section of crypto where you don't know the sender and receiver. They're still able to validate transactions in you know, a secure way. Um, and you can't look at anybody's wallet address and see how much they have. So I, I think those two you know, groups of people, um, Grin and Beam, are like two of the really interesting thought leaders. And down the road, Bitcoin may adopt some sort of privacy structure protocol if everybody agrees on it. And I kind of view these two as test cases for you know, what Bitcoin's future might look like. So this can be off the record, but I mean, all the, you know, these influencers that you're mentioning, it sounds like, you know, they're really using this infrastructure as if it's a joke. <laughs> is yeah, that what I it mean, is? <laughs> it's, it's really, it's not a joke. And, and these guys, they are like world-renowned cryptographers. Um, you know, a lot of them are geeky. A lot of them, you know, have their, you know, own little niches that they subscribe to. And, you know, it's kind of a part of being in the industry. Like, you know, a lot of these guys, they're, you know, absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, some of them work for free. You know, Vitalik Buterin, he's like the founder of Ethereum. And, um, you know, he has videos of him like dancing to unicorn videos online. And, you know, little do you know, like he's like, you know, one of these geniuses that you just got to take for, you know, you, you got to appreciate what he's done in this space and like all of the math and things that he's been able to develop. They're really, you know, revolutionary and a lot of people see that. So, you know, the Mimble Wimble stuff, it, it gets onto that borderline of like, you know, what's real and what's fake. But, you know, these guys, they're not, you know, in suits. They're not Wall Street bankers. They, you know, really don't subscribe to, um, you know, kind of corporate culture or things like that. And they want to do things their own way. And, um, you know, this is kind of their way about it. You also mentioned earlier that blockchain can have a significant impact on our society if we keep developing its capabilities. So what would you say blockchain is asking of us, the general public, to do in order for this to impact us in the long run? I think education is really key. So, you know, I could like I could point to like 10 different people that I know and ask them how does the internet work or how does like a, you know, a Google search query work and you know that stuff's really not that important. Um, you know, there are people, there are developers who know how all that works and you know can tell you exactly how the internet functions or you know how Google like uses their algorithms to, you know, find the most search optimized result that you're looking for. Um, but a lot of people just use it and they find it, you know, very, you know, helpful to their daily lives. You know, in order for blockchain to get there, there needs to be a lot of developers who not only build a solution that's just as good as that, but it has to be better. Otherwise, people will never really make the jump from these centralized technologies over to decentralized. Um, you know, I, I used the App Store as an example earlier, and, you know, it can't be, you know, the user interface is not there yet, and I'll be the first to say that with crypto. Like, you have to store these private keys, you know, you lock them up in, like, you know, a, a bank somewhere, and, 
you know, hopefully nothing ever happens. And like, you know, you have your wallet address and you, you know, copy and paste these different codes and you're sending it. And it's, you know, a really painful process that you need oversight on. Um, you know, maybe there'll be some day where we have like a username and password that you can log in and access your crypto. And there, there'll be custody solutions that are really easy to use and things that integrate in games that, you know, make crypto, um, you know, really fascinating, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, there's a lot of developers working on it. And from the general public, education and awareness is great. But, you know, really a lot of this stuff will just kind of be behind the scenes and it'll slowly integrate and penetrate people's lives. And, you know, they won't even realize. So would you say that blockchain is at a, is in like a dial-up stage right now? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's it's in the dial-up stage, like bulky, bulky cell phones. Like it's probably even worse than that right now. <laughs> it's like, you know... Yeah, like when we had computers that were as big as an entire room um, that could perform like, you know, simple math calculations, like six times six, like you needed like a giant, you know, um, you know, engine to really do that. But um, I think we're probably about like 10% there right now. We're like just getting started. There's a lot of things that are developing and every day it just gets stronger and stronger. So, you know, over the long run, I think we'll get there, but this is really like, you know, a 20 year thing. You know, if you think about the internet, it came about in like the nineties and early two thousands and it's now, you know, 2019 and you know, we still haven't figured everything out. So it's, I see like a similar timeline for blockchain to get where we want it to be. So how do you think us lay people should maybe prepare for blockchain or, you know, if we're curious, where should we go to learn more about it? I would say um, the first thing you have to do if you're curious is there's this book called Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. And he is you know, a fantastic public speaker. He's really good at making concepts um, you know, seem easy and very um, you know, easy to digest. Um, he's got a YouTube channel. You, know, you got you to be willing to learn, I'd say, is the first thing. Like, if you're not curious about Bitcoin, it's going to be tough to understand. It's going to be tough to learn. And you got to be willing to like watch a video, pause it a minute in, and go search what they just said because you didn't understand <laughs> what they were talking about. Um, you know, I think understanding kind of the history of it is important, too, so we don't repeat the same mistakes. Um, you know, history is kind of like, you know, one of my like, you know, big loves. And, um, you know, going back from 2009 to 2019 now, there's like, you know, a lot of mistakes that have been made along the way, whether it's, you know, people participating in scammy ICOs to exchanges getting hacked. You've got to like learn, you know, the lessons of the past and make sure you don't repeat them. So, um, you know, learn a little bit about the history, you know, learn a little bit how it works um, and just come in with like an eager mind. You know, being in New York, there's meetups seven nights a week. You can go on eventbrite.com, search Bitcoin or crypto and you can go learn about Stellar Lumens. You can go meet with EOS people and, you know, these are people who are like, you know, shot callers, like, you know, really key executives in the space, you know, running some of these huge nodes and, um, you know, exchanges. You can go meet with Coinbase people, Coinsquare, like, you know, I've seen everybody speak in New York and you know, that's one of the cool parts that we have here being in like, you know, one of the financial capitals of the world. It's, you know, everybody passes through at some point. Yeah, it seems like from what you're saying, um, you know, blockchain and Bitcoin are going to be most transformative for the financial industry first, and that's where they're going to see the most value add. And then it's just going to waterfall into maybe tech and and other industries. Yeah, I, I think so. I think a lot of these you know different developments will be happening in parallel. I think you know kind of this what people in the crypto space call is DeFi or decentralized finance is pretty cool. Um, you know, it's, it's things like lending. So, you know, one of the projects that uh, I'm working with, it's called Lend Ledger. Um, and really drew me into them was this, you know, lending component. And they told me about the whole financial landscape of India. Um, nobody has credit scores there. But, you know, how do you get out a loan then? How do banks trust you? They created this ecosystem where they pull in all these different data providers. And actually, data providers can sign up themselves. They could be anything like a utility company, you know, your water bill, um, you know, anything like that, any sort of data point they have on individuals and say, this person is trustworthy, this person pays their bills on time, um, you know, and I basically vouch for them to, you know, end up repaying, you know, a loan. And a person could go on there, let's say it's a grocery store owner and say, you know, I need 500 bucks, I need to buy a new stand for my grocery store. And, um, you know, the company will look at these data points and, you know, you can send out a loan then, um, to that person. And it's a form of microloans that kind of replaces this wave, you know, credit scores that, you know, we're so used to in the West. Um, 
you know, a lot of people around the world, they don't have bank accounts. Um, you know, we're very fortunate being here. And I think, you know, kind of this idea that there's so many people that are unbanked, um, you know, anything is kind of better than what they currently have. And there'll be a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, anybody with a cell phone, you know, they're pretty prevalent all around the world now, even in, you know, areas that, you know, aren't very financially well off. Um, anybody with a cell phone can now figure out some sort of way to, you know, send cross-border payments or things like that, um, that they previously didn't have access to. Yeah, I was also reading the other day that, uh, you know, blockchain can also be applied towards government systems, you know, because essentially if we do treat it at this public ledger and it's a very transparent uh, ledger, then, uh, you know, it can really be used to track a lot of different transactions. I mean, we were talking about what if this kind of idea was applied to our tax system, <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be brilliant. I mean, you know, fiat money drives its value. Um, it's a it's government issued tender, so fiat is like your U.S. dollar. Um, you know, why why does it have value? Well, the government says it has value, and they demand you to pay taxes in that in that currency. So, you know, any sort of you know government that would end up accepting Bitcoin as tender for taxes would be, you know, huge for the system. You know, as a whole, um, I think it was Ohio and Arizona. Um, where maybe the two states that came out and said that they'd be now accepting Bitcoin, you know, as, you know, a tax payment. And it really will strengthen the industry as a whole. I think, you know, governments, they'll probably push back, you know, like on any sort of blockchain technology, you know, unless it's some sort of private ledger or, you know, privacy focused um, blockchain, um, just because, you know, the government does things that, you know, it's a privilege to see, you know, you shouldn't have access to everything that goes on behind the scenes. But, and I think some smaller countries, I know San Marino is one of them. It's like a small country landlocked in Italy and um, Malta is another one that are, you know, smaller. They have, you know, a few very rich family offices and a small government that can move fast. And, you know, any sort of adoption that occurs in these places will put pressure on, you know, large governments to, you know, end up participating in this revolution. Otherwise, you know, they're going to miss out on a lot of the economic gains, um, you know, that move over to these countries. Businesses are now setting up shop in Malta, you know, all the time. Binance, it's the largest exchange in the world. They relocated um, from China to Malta and they're now headquartered there. So, you know, these things are happening. And, you know, if a couple more dominoes fall in, you know, maybe some governments will be more willing to, you know, look at blockchain regulated and incorporate it to, you know, their everyday interactions. We also see some challenges here in blockchain regarding privacy and even surveillance. You know, it makes me think, do we really want every one of our transactions to be visible? What are your thoughts on issues of privacy and surveillance here? Yeah, I think, you know, the public ledger is is revolutionary. I think um, privacy is definitely underrated. You know, we're going through some of these issues right now with like Facebook and Google where your, where your data is sold. Um, you know, privacy kind of brings in this component where you, you know, own the rights to your different data and, you know, nobody knows, you know, what you spend your money on. That's personal information and, you know, it should be. Um, you know, this thing that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, being in this space is what actually is money and, and what defines it. And, you know, if you take your U.S. dollar and I, I give you guys $10, um, you know, $10 always equals $10. It's this property called fungibility. Um, you know, one ounce of gold equals one ounce of gold. You know, a diamond, for example, it's it's cut differently. Um, you can't necessarily just take one diamond and, you know, a certain weight and, you know, compare it to another diamond. They're, you know, precisely different based off the way they're cut and things like that. Now, with Bitcoin, we have this, you know, problem. Um, you know, if I receive a Bitcoin from somebody who, you know, did something horrible, like whether it's, you know, trafficking or, you know, laundering money or, or drugs, you know, no company or no organization is going to accept that Bitcoin because, they see that it was involved in these other illegal, horrible things that, um, you know, where it was involved in. And, you know, now I'm stuck with this money that's worth nothing and nobody's going to accept. So I think if any cryptocurrency is going to become sort of like, you know, this token that we spend, you know, on a daily basis with, and it's like, you know, on a card, we use it on our phone, privacy is going to need to be, you know, at least some sort of, um, you know, property of money in, in some sense in order for, uh, you know, to actually go through it, you know, as money. Um, hmm. So you're saying that in this case, you can you actually can see who's touched this Bitcoin, and based on that, that will determine the value of this 
Yeah, 100%. I think like, you know, through the past, you know, one Bitcoin should equal one Bitcoin at all times. But, you know, if there's a chain of transactions and somebody's able to find out that at one point this Bitcoin was used, you know, in an illegal sense, you know, I, I can't go to the store with that or to a bank and cash that in for money because it's kind of now tainted in a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe some people accept it, but it has been tainted in some sense. And there has been pushback from regulatory industries who have to follow certain regulations. But isn't that why money and this idea of cash was created in the first place? You know, if you go back into history, you know, like fiat, like fiat money and cash was created, but, you know, so it takes away these associations of, let's say, like personal identity or like where this money has been before. Exactly. So it, it's, it was created to mitigate those issues. Yeah. So why are we bringing up these issues again? Well, I think like one thing to counter you with there is like a lot of people, they point to the, you know, the crypto industry as a whole and they say, this is only used for drugs. It's only what criminals use. And then you can say, well, hey, isn't that what, you know, a lot of these cartels use with like U.S. dollars anyway? Like a lot of these transactions happen in, you know, fiat money. I I would say, you know, less than, you know, 10% of all crypto transactions are, you know, tainted in a sense or used in these different industries that, you know, do horrible things. Um, You know, cash has, you know, certain properties, like you mentioned, that are great, but we also don't know things like, you know, how often it's issued by the government, you know, what quantitative easing looks like, you know, the inflation schedule. We don't know, you know, what interest rates are going to look like down the road. And all these different things kind of create this, you know, economic uncertainty that, you know, we're putting all of our reliance in a central bank. And I think that's kind of where the pushback is in blockchain and crypto is, you know, against the centralized entity, against things that we can't control, but putting the power back in math and things that everybody agrees upon and trusts and can predict and can expect. Yeah, I think that word uncertainty is a really important word in blockchain, how that's why people are really interested because we're trying to eliminate uncertainty through tracking all these transactions. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how this evolves and whether or not it really does become a digital utopia and and what's going to break and... You know, hopefully these server farms that run Bitcoin don't melt the world. So um, I thought it was really interesting to have you on and think more about the topic more deeply than what we currently just read surface level in the magazines. Um, so I'm excited to read more up on it and learn more. So you know, thank you, Tyler, from com- for coming in today. Yeah, thank you, Tyler. I think you gave us a lot of you know, nuggets of wisdom and insights on where this world is going, though we're still in our, like you said, you know, first baby steps or first dial-up stages of, of blockchain. It looks like there's a lot of potential out there, but we all need to <laughs> achieve a consensus, huh? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, you know, this industry isn't easy. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road and you know, as you look towards the future and kind of what that digital utopia looks like, it'll probably be drastically different than what we imagine. Um, you know, excited to be a part of it and, you know, keep spreading the word. So thanks for having me on, guys. Great. Thanks, yeah, Tyler. Thanks. To all our listeners, if you have any questions and comments about this episode, we encourage you to email us at hello at aboveandbelow.nyc. We have many more topics to cover about the future of the workplace, and you can stay in the loop with us by subscribing to our channels on iTunes, Spotify, or Anchor. Thanks so much for listening.